There truly is no better feeling than telling scary stories around a campfire with your loved ones. Whether it be stories of ghosts, Bigfoot, Shrek slapping up some people in the woods, you'll find all kinds of spooky stories from the great outdoors in this video. If you have a story that you would like to share in a future episode, be sure to submit your story at swampdweller.net or the email you can find in the description down below. I would love to share your story with everyone here in the swamp. It's stories like yours that help us keep going on a daily basis. Now, without further ado, be sure to slap that like button like it owes you money, subscribe if you're new, and get ready for some creepy and allegedly true horror stories to tell around the campfire. Drinking and Driving in the Bayou by Crystal the Boss I live in coastal South Mississippi, not far from the Louisiana line. Everyone around here knows everyone in their families, so it's hard to duck and dodge people if someone wants to. But one place we can always run and hide from people is Bayou Lacroix, and a road that runs through the swamp and marsh. It used to be a reservation for Native Americans. This story occurred in my later teen years or young adult years, when we would tear up that old dirt road with our trucks and ATVs. Unfortunately, many accidents happen on that old dirt road as well. One night, while drinking with some friends, the girl I was hanging out with at the time was trying to impress a boy, and he had a friend. So I was the improvised wingman, and we drank straight from the bottle. One of the boys said, Let's go mud riding. Me, being the tomboy that I am, voted for going. So did everyone else. And being arrogant, confident young adults, we ignored the obvious signs that the road was dangerous, especially while driving and drinking. I'd always heard that there was something dark about that road. The Native American burial grounds and cemeteries surrounding didn't make it any less creepy either. I've always heard around town that there was a territorial presence there. That should be avoided. We never really believed it though. We all piled into the Ford Bronco and went on our way. As soon as we pulled onto the road, I immediately felt anxious and uneasy and regretted my decision. The truck was sliding, mud was flying, and we were having a great time at first. Until we did a few donuts and came to a complete stop. The guy driving slammed on the gas pedal, and we hit a pine tree head on. I smashed into the driver's seat, and everything went black. I woke up to screaming and crying from my friend and groans from the boys, one yelling, We gotta get out of here! There was blood everywhere. One of the boys and my friend were absolutely just smashed. My head was pounding, the pain in my legs were throbbing, there was an unfamiliar stench in the air. I looked up and noticed a pair of eyes locked on us in the darkness. The reality of what was setting in, my pain immediately subsided. I said to them, we, we have to run. The guy that wasn't driving had seen the eyes too, and he snatched my friend out of the truck and we all ran. The possible rattlesnakes, water moccasins, and everything else that could bite us were out of our minds when we heard the snarling and growling that was following us. Thankfully, we made it to the interstate where a random person drove us all to the hospital. Somehow, I made it through an accident without an entire scratch, just a little bit of a bruise on my head. My friend broke her nose, one of the boys had hit the steering wheel so hard that he bit through his own lip, 
and a lot of the other kids had like shattered elbows and bones. However, I have terrible knees from slamming into the driver's seat, and I still experience side effects to this day. I don't know what lurks down that road. From what I've experienced, I believe it's what the locals call the Rougarou. A swamp werewolf, if you will. I don't understand why I came out of that accident flawless. Well, almost flawless. I should have gone through the windshield because I wasn't wearing a seatbelt. When we hit that tree, we hit so hard the engine block almost became the dash. It's something that's been bothering me lately, because I drive at night close to that road all the time. It's been over 10 years, and a jail has been built in that area, but I still watch the tree line for those eyes. There's a shadow above my bed. By Dubiously Yours. I haven't been sleeping well lately. At first, I thought it was because my toddler has been insisting on sleeping in my bed, relegating her poor father to living room sofa most of the time. She's a fitful sleeper, and oftentimes I end up with a little foot kicking me in the side or a softly snoring face pressed into my neck. I don't mind that though, which is why I'm starting to think the reason for my lack of sleep isn't her, but rather this odd feeling or thing that I think I see above me in the dark. The room, it isn't completely void of light at night. My computer has a few small lights that pulse off and on even when it's powered down, and it's in this dim, off and on glow that I see it. Up there, where the wall meets the ceiling, there's a shadow that vaguely looks, well, like the shape of a body, as if someone is laying prone in the angle of the ceiling somehow resting up there despite gravity. Part of the shadow curves out in a way that I swear looks like a person lifting their head while laying flat. I tried to show my husband, but he doesn't see it. He thinks something in the room must be casting a shadow, but I can't, for the life of me, figure out what could make that shape. I get this unsettling feeling in my stomach the longer I look at it. It's almost like the longer I look, the more this figure becomes clear the more I almost see a face. I can't look at it anymore. I feel like it's almost feeding off of my attention, like somehow me acknowledging that it's there makes it even more real. This seems more and more true because if I force myself to look away for some time, when I look back at it, it's suddenly much, much more vague. It's back to being just a shadow. But it's been days, and it's still there. While not so much theirs, it almost seems like it's not on the ceiling anymore. It's on the wall. It's closer. I never see it move, but I swear it's closer. I'm so scared to go to sleep. I'm laying here, staring up at my, at my wall with my daughter's sleeping form at my side, and I think I see its face again. I think it has arms now, and I think I see hands. If I close my eyes, will it fade away, or will I force myself to open them and look at them again? Will that face be inches from my own? I can't go to sleep, and I swear, I think I heard it move. The Bodies Don't Stay Buried and End Greek by Lucas Worley The ground's poison in the End Creek Cemetery. None of these bodies stayed long in the ground. 
Not for the days, the soil was like a wound with a splinter, shifting alive to reject the corpses. Mac thought it was because of the fact that they put the cemetery on the east side of town, on the poor side of the river. Nothing grows here except what comes out of the graves. I don't have much of an opinion on that. I grew up on the opposite side of the river and gave it up to live among what my parents would call filth. It was love that did it to me. I'd met a girl and thought she was the world. As it turns out, she took the money I stole from my family. I'd taken it so we could start a new life together. She took the money and left me here. I don't know where she's gone. The hurt carries on and now I try to bury bodies. My family, an affluent group that owns the fish packing plant on the west side of the river, never came after me after I had stolen the money. I don't talk to them much, but I see them sometimes. The open road has called to me, and I think that I'd like that. Maybe I'd find that girl and ask her why, get some closure on the matter, or maybe I'd be a vagrant and forget that I was ever a member of the Berkshires. Quit your loafing, hollered Mac upon his approach from the parking lot by the church. I was sitting under a tree on the hill overlooking the cemetery out back of the church. I could see most of the town's east side and a few of the bridges heading out towards the epicenter of commerce on the west coast of the old river. The hill was a place I'd like to read, but it was getting hard looking out at all those bodies in the field. Arms and legs and faces looked like sprouts among the rotting loam. We've got a procession in the morning. I'm sure you've heard about what happened to that poor Weathers girl. The ground's fucked, you know that. I tried motioning out to the exposed bodies. We hadn't buried anyone new since they started rising. How do you reckon they do that anyway? How they do what? Mac was an older gentleman, gray in the hair and pot-bellied. So he took the hill to me in wide-angled steps and was out of breath by the time he reached me. I mean, they were buried with coffins, but we've got naked bodies coming out of the ground. I don't know. Mac leaned against the tree and swept long hair from his old, leathered face. Damnedest thing I'd ever seen. We get paid to bury bodies, but they don't seem to want to be there anymore. Any news from the city? I think they'd want us to move the cemetery, exhume the bodies, replant them elsewhere. Still no word what's to happen with it. God damn, the mayor's a shyster, and doesn't even spend any money on this side of the river. He was right. We were the supposed inbred dullards on this side. But I come from the Berkshires, and I know my cousins on the west side of the river are a bit closer than any should be. I imagine they'll give us a truckload of dirt to rake over those poor dead things down there. Mac didn't like calling dead people, people. Always the professional. They were things to him because it was like doing anything else, I guess. And humanizing them would be strange. Not that he was insensitive or sacrilege, it was merely how he coped. What were you reading anyway? I clapped the book on my lap shut and stood up with my back against the tree. It's nothing. You're always so quiet, Max started counting off my strangeness with his finger. You're always disappearing around the goddamn graveyard, you're always curt with people, and you won't even give pleasantries to a co-worker. I understand we're undertakers but that doesn't mean you have to be creepy. I offered a half smile. I thought it was part of the job description. You can't imagine how disappointed I was to learn that a black trench coat and top hat weren't included as our job uniform. 
I didn't want to bury dead people. I hated my job. I couldn't stand it. It was only a job, after all. The first job I could get on this side of the old river. Anyway, I'd been doing it for three years and I'd never liked it one time. Mac changed the subject. I'm sure you've heard though, we've got Sally Weathers' family coming to the steeple tomorrow, around afternoon. I heard, we can't bury the girl, it's a cremation, they just want to use the church for their mourning, and they'll be on their way. We're supposed to get the hall ready for them. What about the clergy? What about them? Asked Mac. You've not heard... You've not had to do any work for weeks now. Come on. I followed him down the slope towards the parking lot, rounding the wrought iron fence of the cemetery perimeter till our feet were on the concrete ground. Stopping off at my car, I tossed the book I'd been reading off in the passenger side and joined Mac on the church's steps. The place was old. It was easily one of the oldest buildings in End Creek. Its walls were constructed from different sized stones and laden with unruly moss and vines that threatened to creep across its stained windows. It was old but not small. At its highest point, it contained a bell tower that you could hear anywhere in town when it was ringing. They used to ring it every hour alongside the clock in the west, but the clergy stopped keeping track and so the east felt strange and diluted with time so that anyone could become ensnared here. Maybe I felt trapped. The wind caught us on the steps along with the smell of the corpses in the cemetery. Rot was heavy in the air. We'd done our best to cover the exposed pieces with lye. The lye did very little to aid with the smell, though. It occurred to me the family coming the following day might be bothered by the smell. Why don't they have the service somewhere else? Mac shrugged as he shouldered his way into the double doors. Don't know. Religious types, maybe. Even still... I wrinkled my nose at the prospect of a mourning family in a place like this. It's not for me to say. I entered behind Mac and stared up at the vaulted ceiling of the church. It felt like an old monster, a beast coming to swallow us up. It was beautiful, if unnerving, to be in such a large structure with only me and him. We spent the remainder of the day sweeping beneath the pews, arranging flowers sent by family and friends for Miss Sally Weathers. She was a young thing even younger than me. I could tell by the flower wraith on the aluminum easel. It had a big picture of her in the middle of all those flowers. Supposedly, she had been flayed by a speedboat propeller. Sam, said Mac, snapping his finger in front of my face. Why are you always spacing out like that? I had been standing in the center row of the pews with the broom in my hands, staring into nothing, thinking, Sorry. Come on, they said we needed to have it ready early. Service isn't till noon tomorrow, but I imagine her parents will be much earlier than that. We cleaned the End Creek Church till it was dark out. All the while, it felt like a big cross with Jesus upon the stage behind us at the lectern was giving me the side eye. I'll never get used to funerals. Normally, we, or me and Mac, didn't sit in on the cremations, but Pastor John asked us to be there. It was probably because, as Mac had said before, we had not had any work to do since the bodies had started coming out of the ground. It gave us something to do, but I wished I'd had something else to do, to be honest. We stood like guards alongside Pastor John, in our dress suits and ties, looking out on the red eyes of Sally Weathers' family and friends. There were a lot of them, and I hoped she was a happy girl when she was still around. Her mother sat in the pew to the left, nearest the aisle, clasping a red oak box, 
The box was an urn with scant engravings on the bronze plaque. That poor woman rocked back and forth and could scarcely keep up her wounded animal moans to herself. It sounded like dying. I'd say there was not a dry eye in the house, but that wasn't true. There was a man sitting beside her mother. I could only assume it was the weather girl's father. He stared straight ahead with a single frigid hand on his wife's back, rotating across it more like a machine than a man. People deal differently. The process was slow, but when I saw that Mac had excused himself through the back quarters where there was an old kitchen, I followed suit until I was out by the cemetery. There were bodies beyond the tall metal fence, and there was Mac lighting a pipe. The air, for a moment, didn't smell like rotting corpses, but skunk weed. He offered, and I took a hit before handing it back. After he'd finished off his pipe, he knocked it against his shoe and smiled, red-eyed, glossy, and said, It's a living. I hate this. The sky was gray, with thick clouds, and there was moisture in the air. Seemingly ignoring what I'd said, he deposited the pipe into his suit jacket pocket. I got word from the municipality across the way. They're going to move it. The bodies? Sure. Heard they're going to take it out to the west where the ground's better. You might find this interesting, but I heard it was your parents putting the bill. Apparently, they want to help the town that helped them so much. It'll be big news. Local fish family offers generous donation. More like good PR if you ask me. Probably. Whatever made you leave all that anyway? I just like digging graves. Whatever you say, Sam. You think they've cleared out yet? He asked, motioning to the church. We returned and watched from the stage as Pastor John consoled the mother. The father was still dry-eyed, still bewildered. Once the church was empty, Pastor John removed himself from the hall and took the steps near the kitchen to his office. Upon his return, he looked worried while holding something behind his back. What's the matter? I asked. Well, said Pastor John, I've got a predicament. I've got all this. With deft hands, he revealed what he had been hiding behind his back, a jug of whiskey, and there's no one to help me finish it all. The three of us, me, Mac, and Pastor John, sat around the bench table in the kitchen of the church, just as a storm rolled in. Each of us had a tumbler of whiskey and rocks, drinking about the day. At some point, the old clergyman broke out a set of playing cards, and both me and Mac were robbed blind of our pocket change. At some point during the game of poker, my mind went to the bodies in the cemetery and how the rain from the storm might loosen them. I felt very cold at the thought of it. The kitchen had an old stone fireplace, and I moved to it, hoping to get it started. Fuels by the kindling there, said Pastor John. I built a stick teepee and doused it in the fuel. The fire came alive and I tended to it while Mac withdrew his pipe again. I warned myself by the fire as the evening came on darker and wetter. The old pastor looked at the undertaker across from him with a suspicious eye. In response, Mac offered the newly packed pipe to the pastor, and the two of them smoked, while I stared out of the window towards the graveyard out back. The rain made the ground look like marshland, and even in the kitchen by the church by the fire, I could not feel warm. I poured myself another tumbler of whiskey and downed it quickly. The lie was washed from the exposed bodies caught in the flashes of lightning out there. This didn't feel right. The dead should stay buried. Their angular shadows cut across the ground and I threw a log on the fire in hopes that it would catch. Why are you looking out there? Asked Mac. 
This is bad, I said. The worst thing I ever saw, said Pastor John. He coughed around the smoke from the pipe and passed it back to Mac. A crash of thunder echoed overhead, forcing a flinch out of me. I took another tumbler to steal my nerves. Returning to the table, I laid my head against my arm and closed my eyes. The room spun and felt sick from the smoke, from the drink, from the dead bodies outside. They were people, but we treated them like things. Dead things should stay buried. Then there was a sick black with smatherings of color before my eyes, and I was off to my dreams. It was cold where I was because it was the pier on the west side of End Creek, where the land met the ocean. There was no storm or rain. There was the fish packing plant my family owned, off to my right, cut black against the moon. The wind cut salt off the ocean and brought it to me. There was a figure along the shoreline waving me over. I felt the planks of wood on the pier and I stumbled to find a place of purchase on the sand below. I found it and stumbled onto the beach, nearly falling over. The figure was shouting out, but it was yelling in a dream, where everything echoed and the voice might have come from anywhere. I went to the figure yards away, caught along the edge of the water at its rockiest. Fighting against the chill in the night air, I pushed to the figure till I met them, and they grabbed a hold of me. The grip was cold as death, and I finally saw who it was that had me. It was Sally Weathers. I had never met this girl in my entire waking life, but there she was. Unlike the photo at her funeral, her hair clung to her head and her face was covered in sand and filth. Around her shoulders was a fish netting from the waters, and her mouth opened. A small crab fell out, and she whispered, It's coming. I jolted awake to find myself sitting at the table in the church's kitchen. The room was darkened. A blanket had been draped around me and there was no noise to save the dying cackle in the fireplace and the steady snores of Mac. He had taken up in a spare pew along the wall, his suit jacket stuffed under his head like a makeshift pillow. I rubbed my arms and stood up, pulling the blanket closer around myself. It was still raining out and dark, and the bodies would smell in the morning. I moved to the window and peered out. It was pitch black out, no lightning whatsoever. It seemed the worst of the storm had passed over. The thought of leaving did start in my head, but I felt the tiredness in my body. There would be none of that. I shambled back to sit at the table, laid my head upon it, watched the dancing shadows created by the fire's dying embers, and disappeared into a deep, dark sleep without dreams. When I woke up again, I'd nearly forgotten the dream. There was the crackle of popping behind me, and I spun to look. There was Pastor John, cooking over the stove. Noticing I was awake, he nodded. Coffee? He asked. I graciously accepted and rubbed my eyes, taking the warm cup in my hands. I saw Max still asleep on the pew. Bad, bad storm last night, said Pastor John. Might need to go and see if any damage was done after breakfast. My dream returned in full force and I rubbed my temples before taking a sip of coffee. Sorry about falling asleep. Don't worry about it. What time is it? Still pretty early, he checked his watch. Quarter after eight. I stood folding the blanket and leaving it on the bench of the table. The windows looking out on the cemetery cut glazed squares across the room. Moving to one, I pulled the coffee to my lips and froze. Where are the bodies? Pastor John stepped from the sausages in the pan and stared out the window beside me. Setting the cup on the counter, I moved to rouse Mac from his slumber. What? He grumbled. Get up. Get the hell up. 
Bleary-eyed, he wipes the sleep from his face and staggered to his feet. What's the matter? Jesus Christ, Sam, what's gotten into you? I went out the back door, moving along the cemetery fence, casting nervous glances at the emptied graves, seemingly mathematically cut from the ground. It was like teeth pulled clean from gums. When I came to the mouth of the fence, my feet took me quickly and I took to the footpath through the open graves. No bodies, no coffins, nothing but empty muddied rectangles six feet deep in the earth. Who could have done this? That was Mac following close behind. Casting a glance back to the church, I could see Pastor John frozen in the doorway, leading outside like he was stuck debating to finish his sausages or scuttle in a panic after us. It was raining last night. Who could have done this in the rain? Max scratched his spiked bedhead. The town went on lockdown immediately. No one was allowed in or out permission. There was a curfew implemented and executive ordinance came from the mayor stating that anyone out past 10 o'clock would be brought into the sheriff's station. Everyone was put on edge, and there were murmurs over who could have done such a thing. Everything was inconclusive. They brought the three of us in for questioning, but we knew nothing. It wasn't just a piece of town gossip, it was the only thing anyone seemed to talk about. People skirted across the street to walk on the opposite side any time I went to the west side of town. And even when I hit the watering hole in East End Creek, the bartender tried me for information. The most I had was a nightmare but I doubt anyone wanted to hear about that. Unfortunately, Mac and I were out of jobs for the foreseeable future as all the newly dead were either cremated or taken upstate to be buried outside of town limits. The lockdown lasted weeks and the townsfolk grew anxious. I visited the End Creek Church often to check in with Pastor John. He would greet me with exasperated confusion. There was a time when his congregation came every Sunday. He'd tell me about the changes. People don't like what's happened here. There was a pause while he thought, I don't like what's happened here either. This place feels different since those bodies disappeared. What do you mean? I mean, I go out there sometimes, and I look in the empty holes. I read the tombstones, and sometimes I get the feeling that I should step in one. What? Yeah, I get the most weird, absurd feeling in the world, like the Earth's welcoming me with opening arms and I ought to lay myself down in it. Maybe I'm getting strange in my old age, he pointed at his head. I know I shouldn't. Maybe I should just leave town. I've been here all my life, though. I went to Mexico once on vacation, but other than that, this is my home. I don't think I'll go anywhere. I'll probably die here. There was the glance of a grim smile. Upon leaving him at the church one evening, I felt the tug of the cemetery in my gut. I rounded the churchyard and moved to the path towards the iron fence. The archway felt different. The opening graves had a certain feel, just as the pastor had said. I moved through them, peering into each one like dark in the evening sun as they ever were. Taking a deep breath, smelling no rot, I closed my eyes for a moment. When I opened them, I forced myself to blink a few times. I stared at an earthen wall. I looked up. I was standing in one of the graves. I couldn't say how it happened. I had been taken up with the spirit of the place. One second, my eyes were closed, the next they were open and I was in one of the graves. Feeling the sinew in my body go instrument tight, I went to move, but my feet were sucked. I shook my head to look at the ground and saw my feet were covered in soil halfway up to the calves. A scream, my scream, surprised me. I dug my legs free, hoisted myself up and scrambled from the cemetery. The night before, I dreamt of the beach. 
the pier, the moonlit sky, and Sally Weathers. She came to me as she did before, cast in milk light and dirty, and I saw the blood this time. The open wounds down the left side hung off her skin like flags in the wind. I was stuck on the beach with my mouth glued shut. I urged a question, but nothing came in the dream. She stepped through the tide to meet me, and she came closer, and I could not say a word or move a muscle. Try as I might. Her hands were cold as her long fingers touched my face. She held my head still, so I looked into her eyes, one transparent and see-through, the other blood red. Sally leaned so close I thought she might kiss me. I tried reeling away to no avail. She opened her mouth, a small crab fell out, and she said, John Matthews. I woke in my bed, drenched in sweat and seawater. I couldn't know. Giving the pastor a ring on the phone resulted in voicemail over and over and over. I knew the older man kept the phone in his quarters of the church. He always said he hated cell phones. I was washing my face in the sink. I paced through my rental in hopes that I'd get a call back. The morning dew clung to the windshield as I fired my car alive. It was so early that it was still dark out. I clicked on the high beams and rushed down the road, pushing ten over the limit. On the drive to the church, I called once or twice more. I left a panicked message on the line each time, hoping my suspicions would be proven wrong. My headlights spilled over the church, and I slammed in the park, rushing to the double doors without turning the engine off. I banged on the doors, getting no response. It was just past six, and the sun was starting over the inland hills. He'd have unlocked the doors by now. I rounded the church and felt the chill of the graveyard. Using my cell phone's light, I took the path through the fence and shone across each grave I passed until I came across one that had been filled with fresh dirt. I swallowed hard, and the name on the headstone read, John Matthews. The Hitman's Hunt by The Black Sheep They say I'm the best hitman in the business. Hell, I've been doing this ever since I was 16. My father started me in this game, and this has been my life ever since. I've done almost every hit you could think of, except for children. I have to draw the line somewhere, you know? Most contracts are standard political figures here, or a top CEO there. I have some strange hits every so often. Some are uncomfortable and messy, but that comes with the job. To be honest, I've gotten rather used to this. I'm already numb to killing. Pulling the trigger is second nature to me now. I'm bored of it, really. Doing job after job, it really does get monotonous. There is no challenge anymore. I feel like the alpha wolf that has killed all the game in the forest and the only thing left is the small animals that don't pose a challenge. Or at least, that's what I thought. A few days ago, after I finished up a job, my handler called me into her office. Now, when your handler calls you, that means two things. You screwed up somewhere or a big hit has to be done. So imagine my surprise when I walked into the handler's office and saw a civilian guy. He didn't look important at all. Just some 9-to-5 guy that works in an office. But this guy had some serious cash. More than enough for my fee. The job was simple. Watch over his house at night. See anything suspicious and shoot it on sight. Apparently this neighborhood had been going through some tragedies. Some deranged man had been breaking into people's homes and taking kids, only for their bodies to be found and desecrated later. Now I had my questions because something about this didn't make any sense. 
What were the police doing about it? Why feel the need to hire a hitman of my caliber to do something? And where did this normal-looking 9-to-5 guy get $2 million in cash to pay me? But being the professional that I am, I don't get paid to ask questions. So I accepted the job and got to the coordinates to where I needed to be. I was set up at the town's water tower. The man's house is directly facing it, giving me a perfect view of every inch of his two-story home. I had to just basically sit there and wait. The man was certain that this house was going to be hit that night. It was a very dull night. No gentle breeze, no rain, no animals making noise. Just a dull, quiet night. As I was scanning the area, I saw the man putting his daughter in bed and kissing her goodnight. A touching moment, I thought. As time rolled on, I was starting to get the sense that nothing was going to happen. It was already 3am and there was nothing. Just then, the wind picked up out of nowhere and I felt a sinister presence. I had been around true evil, but I had never felt anything quite like this. I looked through my scope and I saw it. It was in the little girl's room. It was tall and skinny and it looked deformed and skinless. It had an ape-like face, but its eyes were like black holes with two small glints of blue. Its arms were long, almost touching the floor with long, sharp claws. Its fingers and teeth. I can't forget those teeth. They're more like fangs. I was shocked. In all of my years of killing, I had never seen anything like it. I hesitated, and that hesitation cost that girl her life. Looking at it, you could see it drooling like it hadn't eaten in quite some time. I took the shot and hit it in the shoulder. Had I not been mesmerized, I would have gotten the headshot, but I screwed up. When the bullet hit, the monster howled, waking the little girl. She screamed and it attacked her. I kept shooting, but it didn't do a damn thing. It was so focused on the girl. She was eviscerated. The parents came into the room and it tore them apart, ripping them to shreds. Then it turned its gaze toward me. I aimed at it and it burst out the window, barreling towards me. I was frozen in place. Seeing the thing coming towards me made me feel something I had not felt since my father first put a gun in my hand. Fear. True fear. But I had to swallow that because it was climbing the ladder fast. I readied myself. Clearly my gun was not going to work. So I had my silver-plated blade in my hand, ready to strike. Then I felt the air behind me, filled with bloodlust. How the hell did it get behind me so fast? I thought. Its claws dug into my back, shredding my skin. I rolled away from it, trying to put space between us. But it was so fast that it was on me in the second that I got my footing. It was slashing and tearing at me. I thought I was going to die. I fell on the metal plate of the tower and the creature was standing over me. Looking at it, I asked, What the hell are you? It smiled at me with its blood-stained teeth and said in a demonic voice, I am the hunter, and you are my prey. You are among wolves now, and these are my woods. It went in for the kill, and with my last ounce of strength, I plunged my blade into its chest. It screamed in horrible pain. My blade seemed to burn it. I went in for another stab, but it pushed me away and ran off into the night. I was shocked I survived, but I had to get my bearings quickly. A few days later, my handler called me in. Still bruised and beaten up, I walked in, expecting to face the consequences of failing to complete my job. But she wasn't alone. She had some G-man in her office, and they wanted me to run them through what had happened. After giving them a rundown, I finally got some answers. The man that had given me the job wasn't some civilian, he was a scientist. He was splicing DNA to create the ultimate hunter. He used the DNA of a gorilla, a wolf, and a human. The creature escaped his cage. It followed the man and started stalking his neighborhood. 
Since I came to know about the government monster, I thought they called me in to be snuffed out, but instead they called me in for a job. They want me to hunt down this thing and bring it in dead or alive. I could feel my blood rise, a feeling I hadn't felt in a long time. Excitement. The hunter hunts the hunter. The Longest Night by Dark Moss so, I was a 13-year-old boy living with my mother and her husband in a one-bedroom high-rise flat. This was in East London in the UK, and the area had a bad reputation, and was used in a movie called The Fish Tank. I did not have a good relationship with my mom or her husband at the time, so I spent most of my time at the park and the estate playing basketball, often alone. It was winter, and I had made a younger friend a few days before this incident. My friend and I played on the swings when two older guys approached us. They looked to be around their mid to late twenties. They said they just wanted to chat. On this estate, everyone spoke to everyone, so this seemed normal at the time. One guy who seemed to be the oldest of the two said he recognized me and that we probably went to the same school. After some talking, I was convinced it may have been true. It was getting late and because it was winter, it was freezing out. The older guy invited us back to his flat for retro gaming, saying he had a Sega and PlayStation 2 with many cool games. I don't even recall second-guessing the decision. I just decided that my friend and I should go. The younger of the two guys, who had not said a word the entire time, just left without a word. So the three of us went back to the older guy's flat. The guy had barely any furniture except for an old small TV on a wheelie table, like the one you would have in a school assembly, and a deck chair in the middle of the room. Still being stupid kids living on a rough estate, we didn't put any of this together. We played for some time with no incident until my friend said he had to go home, otherwise his mom would be mad. So we told the guy we had to go. He seemed disappointed but we could revisit at any time and even spend the night if we wanted to in the future. My friend was worried his mom would be mad, so we didn't talk much on the way home, and it was only a short distance anyway. When we got to their house, my mom was at his door talking to his mom. His mom was not mad, but my mom was. I was to say goodbye to my friend, and we left pretty quickly. When we walked back to my flat, my mom told me that I was in big trouble and her husband Jamie was going to kill me. Jamie was an absolute a-hole and already had been physical with me in the past. Why would you even care if I come home or not? You both can't stand me, I said. She said I should go to my dad's if I didn't like it. We argued in the streets and I said I wasn't coming home and walked off. She told me to F off and that I was an ungrateful little shit. We walked our separate ways. Without hesitation, I went back to the older guy's flat. It was only while standing outside his door waiting for him to let me in that the flat opposite had a deer's skull on the door with a massive knife through it, holding it onto the door. I also noticed that the guy's flat had a fitted security camera aimed at where I was standing. He let me in and was seemingly ecstatic that I had returned. He said I was more than welcome to stay and that my mom was wrong for talking to me like that. He let me sit on one chair and I played on the Sega. I wish I could remember what game I played. I wish I could remember a lot of things about that night. It was getting late, and I hadn't turned from the TV even one time. Then the guy suddenly turned the TV off and told me to shush. I could hear police sirens and lots of dogs barking in the distance. 
I didn't know this then, but they were police dogs. They turned off the lights and told me to be very, very quiet. I had no idea what was going on. I don't know how much time had passed with just sitting in the dark and silence. Someone knocked on the door loudly and I nearly jumped out of my skin. The guy's demeanor changed and he told me to get into the cupboard and be absolutely quiet. I did as I was told and got into the closet, which started at around the shoulder height for me and then went up to the ceiling. I could see the tiniest bit of moonlight through a crack in the door, but I could see nothing else. The knocking continued and I could no longer track the guy's location in the flat. My heart was now in my throat and nearly fell out of my ass when I heard them say, Police, we know you're home. I was just about done, so I went to open the door of the cupboard. I got it a quarter of the way open when the guy pushed it with all his weight. All I could see was a silhouette in front of the door crack. He told me not to come out. Well, I settled back in and could just about not breathe through the fear. The noise at the door stopped and I had no idea how much time had passed before someone else started knocking. Open the door or I'll kick it down, someone shouted. It was my dad. I should have felt safe, but I was feeling dizzy from fear. My dad was heavy-handed, and I was scared of him. I was in big trouble. I don't know which one was worse, the police, the guy who had me trapped in his cupboard, or my dad. The shouting stopped, and all was still until I could hear scraping and what sounded like someone banging on the window. We were about six floors up, and my dad climbed up from the side, trying to open a window. Then after holding my knees and biting them, crying with my eyes shut, praying that everything would just stop and I would disappear and be anywhere but there, I blacked out. The following day, the guy opened the cupboard door and the blinding light woke me. I didn't say anything. I was disoriented. He asked if I'd like some beans on toast and I just nodded. As he turned to make it, someone knocked on the door very timidly. I should have mentioned that the cupboard I was in was facing the front door, so I was approximately three meters from it. He shot me a panicked look. With razor-sharp eyes, he muttered, No. I was so exhausted that I opened the door while he stood stiff like a board, not knowing what to do. It was my mom. She had been crying and looked as bad as I did. The guy just stood out of view and never looked around. Can you come home, please? My mom cried. I said nothing and left with her. She told me how the police had been out looking for me all night and that my dad was losing his mind. The police at my flat told me how serious a missing child is and the half of the borough had been looking for me. I went to sleep on my mom's bed feeling like an awful piece of crap and that was that. Now you may think, was I ever in trouble? Well, I'll let you decide. After all this, I moved back from the estate to my dad's. I returned around two years later to see an old friend. We talked about the old times and the things going on in the estate. Before I left, he said, You'll never believe this. Do you remember that friend of ours on the estate? Of course I do, I said. He told me that our friend's sister, who was approximately nine years old, had been invited to that guy's flat on the estate. She had gone there and later that day her family was worried sick and could not find her. Someone on the estate told my friend they had seen her going into one of the tower blocks with a guy who looked around 30. My friend knew exactly who it was and went to the guy's flat. He kicked open the door to find his little sister in the flat. I was never told the rest of the story, but the 30-year-old guy was never seen again. The Forgotten KFC Mascot by Blake Blizzard if you don't remember what a KFC twister was, you're most likely not alone. But if you ate at KFC at least casually during the 90s and the 2010s, you probably have an, oh yeah, I forgot about that reaction. They were a side item buried in the menu that original and crispy dominated. According to the official KFC website, 
The twister consisted of 100% chicken breast filet with crunchy slaw, peppery mayonnaise, and wrapped in a lightly toasted art artisanal tortilla. Side note, you could have had the chicken breast filet either breaded or grilled. This is all one's fancy smanchy way of saying it's a freaking chicken finger with mayo wrapped in a tortilla. It was available in the late 1990s and enjoyed limited success. Enough success that it got taken off the menu in 2014, and that's not really that long ago. What you probably don't remember is the odd ad campaign that KFC rolled out to promote their chicken breast filet wrap. The first commercial introduced a mascot known as Twisty. It was a giant twister wrap costume, red and white wrapping, with a chicken tender poking out. Green sleeves of lettuce surrounded the chicken, with two googly eyes dotting where the face would have been. It started out innocently enough. A family are sitting at the table, dad, son, and daughter. They stare uncomfortably at the table of empty dinner plates. The silence is what stood out to those remembering this. No music, no lines spoken by the family. Mom finally comes through the front door with a bucket of what looks like KFC chicken. The family reacts with long faces, obviously not happy with the run-of-the-mill original recipe chicken pieces they have had for many dinners. She smiles, some say unnaturally. Behind her, Twisty bursts through the door, resembling a new-age Kool-Aid man. He's holding a platter of the just-introduced KFC Twisters. The family goes nuts, accompanied by the typical rad late 90s synth beats. According to a KFC fan-led site, KentuckyFriedInfo.com, the early success of the Twister and the fairly decent life of the menu item most likely owed success to their first strange ad campaign. The site describes the commercial as we just saw above, but the actual footage cannot be found, at least to my ability. It's probably because of what happened in May of 2004. It's hard to say if the KFC Twister had been on their menu consistently from its introduction until its removal in 2014. There were probably at least one or two moments in time that it was removed. One for sure, just to let the heat die down. There was a special KFC restaurant opening in the middle of Missouri. The particular franchisee was an army veteran that had lost both legs while deployed in Iraq. He made a miraculous recovery and was thankfully sent home with multiple accommodations and decided to put his energy into a franchise of KFC, his favorite fast food restaurant. When the powers that be from the colonel's camp in Kentucky found this out, they decided to make this a momentous event. Not only did they cut the franchise fee, but they also built the soldier a brand new building. Usually these KFCs occupy an already existing structure or the new owner just takes over an existing, already running restaurant. The entire small Missouri town was set to enjoy a full day of fried chicken. That's not what most remember from this day though. A decision was made to promote the KFC Twister at this event. No one at KentuckyFriedInfo.com can track down who wanted to make the Twister a central component of this opening celebrating a hero of war. No date exists to prove or disprove if Twister was gone at this time and the KFC execs decided the publicity of this event would boost sales. Twisty made his first public in the flesh appearance or in the costume. From those that were in attendance that day, they agreed that the feeling changed when Twisty made his way to the parking lot. His wrapping paper body looked dirty and beat up. The green lettuce was green no more, and his eyes, that was what the event goers said was the worst. They were big, googly eyes, just like the first commercial, but they remained in place and didn't move when Twisty burst through the fictional family's wall to introduce his twisters. One unnamed parent swore they moved slightly when it bent over to pat a child's head, almost like a low five to a toddler. 
Besides the unsettling appearance of Twisty, the event seemingly was a success. It was a great moment for the Army veteran, and it was a fantastic publicity event for the company, which, let's be honest, was what was more important to them. That was until the police became involved. The parents of a five-year-old child, who will remain anonymous for obvious reasons, filed a police report for an attempted abduction. During the festivities, the mother of the unnamed child lost track of her son. According to the parent, she searched the area frantically. Thankfully, she saw her son's bright red hair walking towards a running vehicle at the far end of the building's parking lot. He was holding hands with Twisty. Acting on fear and adrenaline, the boy's mother dashed towards the predator, making enough noise and drawing enough attention that Twisty hurriedly let go of the boy, running for the vehicle, and quickly left. This would only be the beginning of the mortified parents. Apparently, after describing what happened and detailing the mascot to police, they followed up with KFC itself, attempting to gain information about who they had hired to fill out the Twisty character. The official response from KFC was actually quite chilling. They had never hired anyone to play Twisty, and worse yet, they never licensed that character. They were very adamant that they would never have any character to rival their highly recognizable Colonel Sanders mascot. A tragedy was thankfully subverted that day, Unfortunately, this led investigators, professional and amateur, to look deeper into the origins of Twisty. No trace could ever be found of the first Twisty commercial or any likenesses of the mascot that promoted the KFC Twister raps. The KFC community was left to wonder how so many memories of the odd, terrifying Twisty campaign could exist. Was it a phenomenon of misremembering, or was it a newer case of the Mandela Effect? Even the negative publicity of the time did not end the Twister product, only being taken off the menu over 10 years later. Does anyone remember the chicken tender wrap that was marginally popular from the late 90s? And more importantly, who else remembers the soulless eyes of the Twisty mascot? Don't Follow the Faces in the Mist by S.F. Sundown Don't follow the faces in the mist. It was a throwaway line, but one I should have listened to. We had finished up a block of training and our instructor, a wiry man everyone called Buck, invited us out for drinks. Most of the group joined, but a few stayed along. A lot of them were locals and had places to be. I was happy to have the company. As the night wore on, Buck's stern exterior came down. It is common enough to almost be a rule that sternness comes from a place of care and concern. Though sometimes misplaced, it was not so with Buck. His job was to prepare us for what we would face in our field and provide us with the tools to execute it as rangers, and he took it seriously. I was happy to have him as a teacher. At the end of the night, we said our goodbyes. He slapped down a hand on my shoulder and took in a breath. He lifted his head with his drooping eyelids and looked at me with a sustained intensity that shook clear the clouds of drunken mind. He said, The Smoky Mountains are a remarkable place, but promise me one thing. Don't follow the voices in the mist. It took me five years before I discovered why. The call came through in the early afternoon. A kid had wandered off from the campsite a few miles down the road from the ranger station. The situation is common enough. Someone had wandered off and couldn't find their way back or had managed to get themselves stuck. The majority of these calls resolve themselves the same day. We find the person and issue stern warnings. Hell, sometimes it is all over by the time we even get there. But not always. And no one in our station needed any reminding. Posted on the notice board beside the front door is a picture of Jessica. Her photo has been there for the entire five years I have worked at the station. She went missing the summer before I started. She is still there because we never found her. 
Jessica's father insisted the photo stay until she was either walking back out of the forest or the alternative no one wanted to give voice to. I know that photo better than any photo of my family or friends. Six-year-old Jessica with blonde hair spilling over her shoulders, fingertips poking out the sleeves of a red puffer jacket one size too big, a pair of bright yellow boots pushing up over faded denim jeans, and a big toothy open mouth smile. Her family took the photo the day that they arrived at the campsite. When the sun set on the search, her father had a copy printed and plastered all over the surrounding town. They were the clothes she had been wearing when she wandered off during the hike the family took up to the waterfall. The copy hanging on our notice board is the only one left. We pulled up to the campsite in our truck. A woman with a bright red beanie pushed down over dark hair was upon us as soon as we got out. She had her phone pressed to her ear and stuffed it in her pocket absentmindedly when she saw us. Adrenaline made her voice shrill and pushed her words together. Kyle nodded and added a few calm words to get her on track. His voice and manner are perfect for these situations. He didn't interrupt, he didn't raise his voice, he only slipped in enough words to get the information we needed. Her name was Polly, she was six years old. She had been wearing a red beanie like her mother's and had faded brown jacket on. It had been passed down through the family. She had dark brown hair and brown eyes, and where was she last seen? Well, where they were hiking was up to that same waterfall and they planned to have a picnic up there. When they made it to the top, the mist had come in so thick they couldn't see anything of the view. That combined with the chill in the air convinced them to come back down. The four had walked together, mother, father, older brother Will and Polly. She had been up there with them when they made it down. On that point, both mother and father agreed, Will had shrugged his shoulders. At the campsite, the air was clear and the false sun warmed our shoulders. Up the mountain could very well be a different story though, and it likely was they somehow left Polly behind the walk back. We got a vehement no. She came down off the mountain. Somehow, in the time between coming back down and setting up the picnic at the fold-out table beside the camper, Polly had wandered off. It wasn't like her. She was a good girl. As we listened, a small crowd circled us at the distance. Because it was the middle of the day, most of the campers were off walking a trail or sightseeing in one of the nearby towns. The ones that were around, elderly couples on retirement and families on holiday, picked themselves up off their deck chairs and came to see about the commotion. No one had seen little Polly, though. Kyle split us into two teams. The first was to search down and around the campsite, the most likely place she would be. At the back of the campsite, a tree-lined creek meandered down the mountain. Beyond the terrain was rough, grass-covered hills and gullies filled with thick bushes. If she had ventured out there, a slip could send her tumbling into a stack of reeds and no one would see her. The second team was to go back up the trail, retrace the steps the family had taken to come down. It was unlikely, but sometimes people had what Kyle called a McAllister moment. This is when a parent is sure their child is or isn't with them, and they are wrong. It is the sort of thing that leads to parents leaving their children in cars on hot days, and famously a family named the McAllisters leaving their child home alone to stave off some would-be thieves at Christmas time. Mark and I ended up on the team heading up the trail. I'll admit I was a little disappointed. Like Kyle, I was sure Polly was somewhere around the campsite. It is a selfish thought, but on a search you always wanted to be the one who finds the person. I was sure now that it wouldn't be me. We started up the trail, leaving the campsite in the search effort behind. Before we left, the mother had shown us a photo of Polly taken up at the waterfall. I kept the picture in my head as we walked. I hoped we wouldn't be adding it to the notice board. The trail was eerily quiet. I had walked it many times and always come across people powering up or coming back down. 
Not today. The trees surrounded us on all sides, and the world went silent. We walked slowly, scanning through the forest on either side and calling out her name. We hadn't gone far when the mist came in, thicker and faster than usual. When you live up this way, you get used to it. There's a reason they're called the Smokies after all. Before long, visibility was down to only a few yards. I stopped and looked back down the trail. It was no better than the visibility ahead. It almost seemed unnatural how quickly and completely the mist had arrived. I was about to say I had never seen anything like it when Mark took the words right out of my mouth. It was comforting that it wasn't just me. No wonder the family had turned back. The ferocity of the mist gave rise to a terrible thought. Polly may be up here in the forest somewhere. It would be easy for a child to wander off or even to stop to fumble with a stray shoelace for just long enough to get separated from her family. The parents had been sure she made it down, but then there was the McAllister effect. I called ahead to Mark, who had walked on ahead. When I received no response, I skipped a few paces to catch up. As an adult and knowing the area as well as I did, there was still a moment of fear when being alone spiked in my stomach. I could only imagine what Polly was going through if she was up here all alone. Mark had stalled up on the trail ahead. He turned as he heard my footsteps and pointed out to the right. He thought he heard something. I squinted through the mist, but saw nothing. He couldn't give me any other details, only that something had caught the corner of his eye as soon as he was about to turn his head. I stepped into the trees and called after Polly. A few steps more and I stopped and listened. Nothing. Back on the trail, Mark was fixed in place. His face had gone pale. It moved, he said. What did? The mist. I turned behind and then back to Mark. I waited for a punchline or for him to break into a smile, but none came. Let's keep going. I found myself on edge. The mist enclosing us had a sudden menace to it. As we climbed it, it only grew thicker. I buttoned up my coat, and against the cold, it was like being high in the air and inside a cloud. We walked in silence. I called out after Polly half-heartedly. When I noticed Mark was no longer by my shoulder, I stopped and turned. I strode back down until I found him standing like a statue. He shook his head at me. He wanted to go down. I grabbed his arm and told him we had to keep going. It was our job and if Polly was up here, she was relying on us to find her. Mark is a big guy, but at that moment he looked small and fragile. He looked up to the sky and then back to me. He nodded and we continued. Up ahead, the trail turned to the left. As we approached, the bend shapes started to appear in the mist. At first, I took them to be the outline of branches leaning over the trail, but as we came closer, the outline stretched and deformed like clouds changing shape under a high wind. The shape coalesced into something that vaguely resembled the outline of a small child. I blinked my eyes and refocused and it was still there. The outline of a child running away from us, around the bend in the trail. I broke into a run and rounded the bend chasing after the shape in the mist. On the other side, there was nothing, only a blank wall of mist like before. Had I just imagined it? Was my mind playing tricks? I turned to Mark to check if he had seen it, but Mark was not there. I ran back to the bend and rounded it again in the other direction. Mark? I ran a few more steps and still nothing. Mark? I called out again and again and again, but there was only silence. He was just there a second ago. He had been beside me when the bend came into view. I was sure of it. Or had he? We had walked in silence. Had he flaked? turned back, and left me alone? Surely not. Mark was a reliable guy. He wouldn't do that to me. Maybe I had a McAllister moment. But then, where was he? Mark? I called again and again. I ran 50 yards back down the trail and nothing. I stood with my hands on my hips, unsure of what to do next. 
I didn't want to walk back to the campground without Mark. I also didn't want to hike further up the trail alone. A pocket of warm air washed over me and back over my neck. It was as if someone pushed their mouth right up against my skin and exhaled. I snapped my head around and no one was there. I almost called out again for Mark and thought better of it. I took a few steps back up the trail towards the bend where I'd seen the shapes in the mist. On my left where the rustle of leaves and a sharp crack of a twig snapped, I stopped and peered through the mist in the trees. Something in there moved. I leaned forward. A few feet above the base of a tree, a small pocket of mist turned into a circle. As I neared it, it coalesced into a face. The face of a child. A small girl. Polly. I jumped forwards and the face pulled back further into the forest. I called out to the girl and followed her into the forest. If she was up here, I had to look. I had to be sure. Soon, trees surrounded me. The mist hung as heavy around the trees as it had done on the trail. I looked left and right, searching for the face I had seen or thought I had seen. No, it had to have been there. There again, up ahead, the vague outline of a small girl. I put the picture of Polly back into my head so that I knew that it was her. Red beanie, faded brown jacket, dark hair, and brown eyes. But as much as I tried to picture Polly, it was the other girl, Jessica, from the photo on the notice board that I saw. The blonde hair, the red puffer jacket, and that big smile. I couldn't shake the image. I followed the face of the girl in the mist. I skipped a few steps to catch up, but she disappeared. I stood panting a little and called out. And there she was, directly ahead, standing in a small clearing. Red puffer jacket and blonde hair, six-year-old Jessica. Six-year-old Jessica, who disappeared five years ago and was now here, still six years old. I squeezed shut my eyes and shook my head. When I opened them, she was still there, smiling up at me with that big, goofy grin. I trembled. This shouldn't be. It was Polly I was searching for, dark hair, red beanie. I'm looking for Polly, I said and immediately felt foolish. The child looked up at me, confused, and the smile was gone. She turned a circle on the spot, and when her face came back into view, her face was different. Not only was her face not there anymore, it was now dark, and she manifested a red beanie. It was Polly now, where it had been Jessica a second ago. Polly? I said. She made the same goofy smile as Jessica had in her photo. I shook my head and almost yelled to her. You are not real. This can't be real. The grin faded again and her mouth twisted into a grotesque snarl. Her mouth opened wide and then wider still unnaturally so and her crooked child's teeth morphed into razor sharp fangs. The moment before I turned to run I locked with the creature's eyes, yellow and menacing. I raced through the trees desperately seeking the trail. I swung my head around and in the mist a wall of faces closed in from behind. I gave an involuntary yelp and forced myself to look away. When I finally found the trail, I turned and ran at full speed down and When I finally found the trail, I turned and ran full speed down and toward the campsite. Mark be damned, I didn't want anything to do whatever with whatever. Mark be damned, I didn't want anything to do with whatever was hiding in the forest. I turned back and before I could process anything, I hit a wall in the trail and tumbled to the ground. It was Mark. I scrambled to my feet and Mark stared at me with eyes filled with terror. Did you see it? I didn't answer him. I grabbed him by the arm and started down the trail. We had to get down. Mark made a noise, a half laugh, half cry, and I turned and followed his outstretched hand. There, standing near the trees, was Polly. But it wasn't Polly. She stood there and watched us, with an arm held out, beckoning us into the forest. Don't look at it! I fixed my eyes on the trail ahead, trying to give myself tunnel vision. In my imagination, the faces sprung up again on each side. I covered my head and yelled at them to stop. And then, as if someone flicked a switch, I felt the warmth of the sun on my face. I looked up and saw the blue of the sky. We were out of it. 
we slowed to a walk. When we came back to the playground, Kyle asked us if we were okay. He could see that we were shaken up. I didn't know how to explain what we had seen, so I told him that we did not find Polly. The team at the base had not found her either. I am convinced of two things. Polly went missing on that trail somewhere in the mist, and whatever we saw was not her. There is a second photo hanging on our notice board. Polly has joined Jessica, two girls taken by something lurking in the mist. Terror in the Mind of the Abyss by Blake Blizzard Battle not with monsters lest ye become a monster, and if you gaze into the abyss, the abyss gazes also into you. Friedrich Nietzsche Something is looking at me in the corner of my room. I throw one bleary, half-opened eye toward the ancient alarm clock in an attempt to see what time it is. 3am, of course, we all see things late at night. Things that shouldn't be there, because they usually aren't. Maybe after a stressful night of sleep, I'll wake up to see something just dart out of my vision. I'm sure people have shadows and heard weird noises in the dead of night. I can explain most of these away. After your brain has been in sleep mode, for lack of a better term, your perception is not calibrated as it is during your waking life. How many times have you seen what you know is a pile of clothing in a chair or a corner and mistaken it for the devil's most heinous creation? I hope what I'm seeing now is just a pile of dirty laundry. It's not a pile of laundry. As my eyes and brain were working overtime trying to assure me it was not an intruder or a demon, I heard a quiet expulsion of air coming from the pile of clothes. A snort. A tiny stream of air leaked out of what would appear to be a small hole in the face. Can you imagine how many voices and thoughts go through your head when you realize that someone or some possible deity is in your home, watching you sleep? This thing was dark. As I said, it's in the middle of the night right now. This thing is a mass of bad energy, blacker than night. I think I can barely perceive two almond-shaped eyes with the slightest yellow tint staring back at me. My bedroom is fairly spacious. I think that is making this more unsettling. For context... If I, for some goofy reason, had a basketball next to my bed, I could easily toss it at the being. I'm not the most accurate, but I know I could smack it in the chest area if it has a chest. He, she, or it just sits there. Now that my eyes are adjusting to the night, it looks like this thing is perched on the dresser in the corner. I can barely make out what looks like legs in a squatting position. I guess. The arms blur into the mass of black, but I can clearly see fingers gripping the counter of the dresser. Tendrils might be more accurate. I mention the eyes. The mouth, I don't want to describe. Sweat forming. I fight to control the shaking in my extremities. I'm lying on my back, arms at my sides and legs straight. I could be mistaken for King Tut right now. I dare not move, but I have to see how long has elapsed since I awoke to such rudeness. The slowest, most painful eye movement in history and I see it's 3.02 a.m. No. I can feel tears start to slowly cascade from my eyes down my cheeks. I still dare not move. At this point, all I can do is shut my eyes and forcefully pray myself back to sleep. Before I do, I catch one more glimpse of the thing, still perched, still staring in my direction. I could probably still hit him with the basketball with a decent amount of effort. As I somehow drift back to sleep, I remember being 9 or 10 years old. One of the many dumb moments of my childhood comes to greet me. 
I was showing off my new 410 air rifle pellet gun to my friend, who was staying over for the night. After blowing away some helpless coke cans, my friend said it would be cool to start shooting stuff inside my family's barn. It seemed harmless. We fired off some rounds into the wood exterior. Then I got one of those brilliant young boy ideas of shooting some windows. Our barn didn't have glass windows and the only opening was meant to lead a contraption feeding hay into the second level. But my dad kept a collection of window panes ready for assembly in the summertime for our greenhouse, something he and my mom were very proud of. They cultivated multiple beautiful botanicals along with a plethora of fruits and vegetables. I remember hitting the first window dead center. It didn't shatter as you would think. The pellet round was small and the greenhouse glass was thick, maybe half an inch. It made a tiny hole where the pellet penetrated, and my friend and I laughed and moved on. Only a day later, my dad brought me to the barn. He calmly asked me who shot the windows. I was blown away. How did he even see the hole? And why did he think it was from a gun? Kids, we thought we were so much smarter than our parents. I did what stupid kids would do. I, I have no idea, I stammered. I remember looking into his eyes, seeing that look on his face bordering on rage, but containment. I'll ask you again, son. Why did you shoot my greenhouse glass? I panicked. I blamed the whole idea on my friend. Shameful. It wasn't justified. And my dad was not satisfied. Maybe not 100% sure if I was telling the truth, but he knew that I had something to do with the shooting. Thankfully, he dropped it and I received no punishment. I blamed my friend, who did have the idea to shoot stuff in the barn, which was stupid, but it was me who decided to impress my friend by shooting some glass panes. None of it makes sense now to my adult brain. I am awake now, queasy and heart-pounding. The beast is still there. Shit, it's moved closer. Now, if I, for some reason, had a basketball near my bed, I could peg him with minimal effort. I'm not the most accurate tosser, but I'm confident I could hit him right in center mass. The panic starts to set in now. What is this? Why is it here? Why won't it just kill me already? I try to get a better look at it now that it's closer. Still dark. Still staring. It's like a statue with a heartbeat watching, seething, and judging. I am 24, working as a security for a well-known pizza mogul. I didn't work for him directly, but for one of the many companies he created. I'm stationed outside of one of his buildings while the Thanksgiving parade commences. This parade is cherished by all of those in the area, and I grew up watching it on television every single year. In the midst of making sure our area was safe, I caught a vision of a homeless man walking through the crowd. If not at all unfamiliar, he seemed enthralled. He was taking in the spectacle just as everyone else was. Tattered, bruised, broken, he still took a moment out of what I would assume was an awful existence to enjoy the day of the event. I jolted up and momentarily forgot that I was sharing my bedroom with a creature from the unknown. I have not moved since I noticed it. Now I'm propped up on both of my elbows, breathing much more heavily than I'd like. It's moved closer to me now, so close that I could take a golf ball if I had one near my bed and toss it in the demon's face. I'm fully conscious now. My thoughts run into my fiancé asking her to marry me on the Cuyahoga River in Ohio. Her spirit, her love, I've never known any other person that has so much love to give. I am now entangled in a staring contest with this thing. Shockingly. It moves slightly back, still not making any more noise or giving up any emotion. I decide to blatantly look at this time. It's 6.30am. Why won't this thing just kill me? I am losing the will to go on. 
Whatever game this is, I don't have the mental capacity to compute. I've never been more afraid of my life. It slowly slides back off my bed to its original position. Its movements are sickening, cracking, and slimy. Correction, I've never been more afraid of my life until right now. My once dark blinds are now turning a gradual yellow. Moonlight gives way to daylight. The sun is quietly making its daily debut. I noticed that I don't have my blinds fully closed either. There looks to be an exposed space about 8 inches that allows the natural light to shine in. Enough light to expose just the most gradual essence of my intruder friend. The light shows only a portion of his left side. I now know that I wish I held on to the perception I had of it. A being. An entity. A spiritual disaster. The light exposes something that looks... human. Feral, but human. Its arms has hair up to the shoulder like a dog. Its oblique is strong and scarred. I don't know if this is mental, but the smell of swine protrudes through my nose. It follows the new vision of this entity. From this torso, back up to its face, it's absolutely disturbing. This thing's face is now more illuminated, and I notice that it's smiling. Several teeth bared, dripping with blood and saliva. I didn't think seeing a human would be worse than seeing a monster. I wish it wasn't human. It's so close. The smell is making me feel lightheaded, like a dead animal carcass, baking in the desert heat. The worst part is how bad this smell makes me feel. Physically, it makes me feel nauseous. That part I can try to deal with. Mentally, the smell makes me... It makes me feel fear. I'm terrified. I should have been better. Better to everyone. I'm such a disappointment. What, what do you want? It starts to crawl toward me, smooth but jerky, like a wind-up toy. What do you think, Detective Lungo? The tired senior inspector side-eyes his new partner. He knows a cornucopia of vomit is coming. It might not be now, but it'll be soon. The new detective holds his mouth with a tissue-draped hand. Well, the cut on his neck is jagged. It's like someone strangled him with barbed wire. His entire third is... Oh god. Grizzled vet waits for Lungo to return. You were saying? Right, so the victim looks like he died from strangulation. That's for sure. But the violence needed to cut his neck would be... Way further than anybody needed to do. Junior detective grabs his CVS bag to puke into it again. If your guts are empty now, do you have any theories of what happened here, rookie? Lungo has grown to hate his new promotion. 18 years on the force, 10 years on the department SWAT team, several high-risk warrant arrests, two huge high-profile media-covered convictions. Anyone would call this service and a veteran status, but he's a rookie detective, and that's the way his fraternity works and always has. Lungo wipes the last remaining trace of clear drool and mucus from his face. He got his dang neck almost cut in half, Sal. You don't need a gold badge to see that old man. He knows he should not have snapped at the veteran officer, the man who's volunteered to mentor him no less, but he's not sorry either. He doubts Sal has seen something like this himself, even in all his years in homicide. Sal looks at Lungo, smirking a bit. <laughs> yeah, kid, it doesn't get any easier. You just learn how to compartmentalize it and move on. Come on, the uniforms have something to tell us. Lungo eyes the old man, now dropping his anger down a few notches. He knows Sal wants the best for him. He should appreciate that more. 
Lungo finishes up jotting down what one of the first responding officers was telling him. So, Sal asks, trying to study the new detective to see if it's bad news or worse. Lungo looks up from his notes, shaking his head. No forced entry. Fiancé is a complete mess. Of course, but she says there are multiple cameras on the property. So that's good. Poor girl. Even hearing the worst news you could ever hear in your life, she wants to help us pull up the camera feeds. Officer Ramirez smartly told her, when we get the guy, we can figure it out. She's on her way to the station now. Good, Sal spoke. Was it your idea to get her out of here? Lungo gave a confused half-shake of his head. Um, yeah. We can't have her here right now while this is so fresh. It's not good for the investigation, and more than that, she shouldn't be here while her husband-to-be was already started to decompose. Sal tries to stop, but a half-smile materializes on his face. Maybe only the Hubble telescope would be able to spot it in the general population. But Lungo noticed. You bet he noticed. This doesn't make sense. We need to get to the office and start finding out what this guy was into. No prints, no notes, no known enemies in the most basic preliminary calls I've made. What are we still doing here, senior detective? Lungo is off guard. He's more of the go-in-first, ask-questions-later type. Now, he's had to do a 180 and focus only on questioning. Sal takes a seat at the edge of the bed, careful to not sit in any DNA, even though most of it has been cleaned up now. The CSU guys got what they needed and the cleaner they always use it is already on his way to make the bedroom look like none of this horribleness ever happened. That's his gift. You think it's a good time for a sit-down, old man? Lungo spits out, cocking his head to one side, not taking his eyes off his mentor. You were right about one thing, rookie. We have been here a little longer than usual. I thought you'd find it way before I did. You're 20 years my junior. People don't write notes today, bud. Lungo immediately gets that rush of, oh shit. I knew it the second it left your mouth. He slowly moves his head toward the victim's laptop. Open, but sleeping. God, how did I... what? Sal mercifully waves a helping hand at Lungo. It's okay, kid. We all do it. You didn't think it was that important. I get it. Open it up. He hit some of the random keys to unlock the computer from its slumber. The screen lock appeared. A scenic view of a mountainside. Several versicolored plants dotted the foreground. Lungo only knew this because he had a passion for plant life. Something he had definitely kept from his brotherhood on the force. It's been such a long night, Lungo forgot they already looked at the computer. But it was password protected like every device in the last 10 years. It's locked, Sal. We already knew this. Ramirez said he's got someone at the station who can come figure out the password. Look at the back of the notepad beside the laptop, son. Lungo did. Scribbled on the rear of the pad were four bold letters. V-A-L-E. What the hell is that supposed to mean? Lungo asked. It's Latin for goodbye, Lungo. So you knew this was here the whole time. What the hell is wrong with you? We're trying to figure out a robbery gone wrong, or a senseless murder, or a suit. Lungo stopped. You need to put it together, son. Type that in for the password. I bet you'll find something as soon as you do. Lungo, now feeling the sadness creeping out from nowhere, did as he was told. Four quick keystrokes in the lock screen dissipated. Open was a word document. It looks like our victim is writing something, describing something wicked coming for him. I don't fully get it. It's a suicide note, Sal. Son of a bitch.
Hello by A. Burkett. Megan was 23, single, and loving it. She had a close circle of friends and a great family. Her life was good, nothing major to speak of. Things had always just seemed to fall into place. Friends would joke that things were too perfect in her life, but one day, it was all going to crash. Though Megan laughed those thoughts off, she loved her life, and no matter what, she would always persevere through it all. It was Friday night, and she was invited out to a small party at a friend's house, but she thought it sounded more fun to lay around and watch TV. By the time it was dark outside, Megan had showered, thrown on some jammies, rubbed on a face mask, and was popping some popcorn. Settling in for a romantic comedy she'd been wanting to see, she felt incredibly relaxed. About 30 minutes into the movie, the phone rang. The screen said, unknown caller. Answering it after the first few rings, it sounded as if the caller was standing on a highway. There was so much noise in the background and what sounded like vehicles driving by. Hello? She asked. There was no response and just as she was about to hang up, a voice spoke on the line. Hey, James, it's me Marshall. A raspy but deep voice said, Oh, I think you have the wrong number, Megan said confidently. She knew no one by the name of James, and this number was not familiar to her in any way. But the voice persisted as if he hadn't heard her. Hey James, do we have jumper cables? Megan wondered if he didn't hear her. I'm so sorry, I think you have the wrong number. James, I'm pretty sure it's just a dead battery. I think the jumper cables will work. I'm out here on I-90. Megan was becoming frustrated because she felt bad, but this was getting annoying. This poor guy was stranded on the side of a dark highway. Maybe she could get some information from him and send him a tow truck at least. Sir, my name is Megan. I'm not sure if you can hear me, but I'd like to at least send a tow truck to you. James, it's really dark out here and there's strange sounds out here. I can't tell where it's coming from, man. By this time, Megan was beyond frustrated. She didn't want to hang up on this poor guy, but also didn't want to stay on the line if he wasn't able to hear her. Maybe she could just send a tow truck, but I-90 running through Montana was vast. It could take forever to pinpoint his location. Think. There had to be some way she could help him. Hey James, you there? I guess I could just start walking. I'm bound to run into something. Thought about sleeping in the truck, but it's so dark out here. It's really creeping me out to just be sitting still. Sir, if you can hear me, my name is Megan. I live pretty close to I-90. If you are heading east on the I-90, you might be able to find my house. It's light blue with a white picket fence. There aren't many houses in the area. Megan felt desperate to help this unfortunate stranger. James, if you just bring the jumper cables, I bet we can fire this truck right up. How long do you think it will take? Incredibly frustrated with this one-sided phone conversation, Megan continued, Maybe you can't hear me well, but please, my house number is 9251. You'll have to walk down a long driveway, but you'll see my house. I have the porch light on. Once you get here, we can figure out how to get your truck running or towed. After a long pause, the line went dead. Megan couldn't call back because her cell phone showed unknown caller. Sitting quietly for a moment or two, she reflected on the call and realized it actually only lasted about three minutes. Attempting to shake the whole thing off and resume her evening plans of movie watching, she realized she needed to wash her she realized she needed to wash her face mask off her face. Heading to the bathroom, the house seemed unusually quiet. She just kept thinking about that strange phone call. It's as if he never realized he was talking to her. Maybe he couldn't hear a word she said. Washing her face and turning off the water, she swore she heard a noise near the back door. 
She didn't feel scared but wondered if she should. Slowly walking out into the hallway, she looked towards the kitchen in the back door. That's when she heard a male's voice. Hey Marshall, I found the jumper cables, a man's voice said behind her. Whirling around, it appeared to have come through the front door. Processing this and staring at this man in shock, she heard a second voice. Hey James, this one isn't the brightest, is she? Hopefully, it won't be hard to sell her. Spinning around to see where this voice was coming from, she felt a sharp pain suddenly in the back of her head, and the ground seemed to be moving at a rapid speed to meet her face. When she woke up, it seemed like two minutes had passed, but she knew more time must have passed. Lying still, slightly curled up, her head throbbed in the back. She blinked her eyes, trying to adjust to the absolute darkness around her. She could feel a vibration under her, almost like she was moving. Then it occurred. She was in the trunk of someone's car. My Dad is a Chair by Thomas Russell The title doesn't lie. My Dad is a Chair. To be specific, he's a fully upholstered bright orange angel accent living room chair. The kind with wooden legs you'd find in any three-piece suite from the 70s. He's pretty comfortable, truth be told. A little lumpy in places, but his padding is soft. Warm, too. He's always warm. There's always that telltale ba-dump, ba-dump, ba-dump coming from the back cushion, a steady rhythm at my lumbar to remind me that I'm sitting at no ordinary chair. He wasn't always a chair until last year. He was Kevin the accountant. He was 51, slightly overweight, and generally seemed to enjoy his life as a human. He was married to mom. He still is, but, well, as you can imagine, it's a little complicated now. It was funny at first. He came home from work one day and just sat in the corner of the living room. When we'd ask him why he was sitting on the floor, and not the $4,000 cream leather couch, he'd just smile and say, it feels right here. It stopped being funny the morning he didn't go to work. Turns out, he hadn't slept from the night before. He had been watching a movie with my mom, but had not gone with her to bed. She left him sitting in a spot, unsuspicious of the I'm not tired, I'll be up in a little later lie. She and I both begged him to get up but he refused to move, phoned in sick at work, the whole deal. He just spent the day sitting on the floor in his corner. We kept asking him what was wrong, why he wouldn't get up except to use the bathroom, and he just kept saying, no, no, this feels right. Mom phoned in the doctor around the third day of this. He stopped eating or drinking. You see, he stopped getting up to use the bathroom too. Surprisingly, though, there weren't as many, um, accidents as you'd think. Once he'd allowed the last of the food and drink to leave him, it seemed to stop coming. We also didn't hear his belly growl despite going a day and a half without food. The doctor couldn't make any sense of it. Their first guess was that it was psychosomatic, but that wouldn't explain the absence of digestive activity exposed by the stethoscope. They said they'd be back to take some blood samples in a few days after they discussed some things with some colleagues. Unfortunately, as I said, this was the year of 2020. We never really heard back from the doctor thanks to the virus that shall not be named. I guess, guy with gut troubles who refuses to move is low on priorities list during global pandemic. Somehow, my mom managed to wrangle long-term sick leave with my dad's company. Decades of being a loyal employee, combined with my mom's attendance at every company barbecue and softball game, helped Mr. Bannerfrag buy the unexplained stomach concern requiring hospitalization excuse. I'll never forget that phone call. 
At the time, Dad losing his job was the worst-case scenario for both of us. He'd always been the breadwinner. Neither of us could support ourselves without him. We'd lose the house in under a year. Dad didn't seem to be too perturbed by Mom's frantic pacing or the lies she told through the phone to Mr. Bannerfrag. He just stared at the wall serenely, hovering his butt a half a foot above the carpet, balancing with his legs bent and his hands flat on the ground behind him. That night, I fell asleep listening to Mom yelling at Dad. He never yelled back. We started to see the physical changes after a few days. That's when we realized this wasn't psychosomatic. Unfortunately, our shitty best insurance deal on the market doctor wasn't picking up the phone. We'd get passive-aggressive emails informing us they were waiting to hear back from colleagues, but that was it. This was not good, especially not when the joints in my dad's arms and legs had fused. The not-goodness of the doctor's silence increased a thousandfold when we sent photos of dad's hands and feet flaking off like discarded spider husk the following week. Did the response change? No. We got a very snippy email about shortages in the ICU wards and the critical international situation. Mom's shouting match with the chief of medicine, the one she demanded her way up the phone chain to speak to, didn't change things. We were on our own. Mom spent all of her time in the living room with Dad. I'd help her wash him, try and make him eat, talk to him when she'd tire out and fall asleep on the rug. Every day of this routine brought with it new changes in Dad's body. It all started with his limbs, as you could probably guess. When his hands and feet fell off, there was no blood. They flaked apart, crusty and dry, brittle throughout. Even the bones of his toes and fingers had the density and consistency of dead skin. The wrists and ankles they left behind were smooth and hard. It was difficult to tell whether they were made of flesh or exposed bone. The dark, shining surface seemed to blend into his normal arm at the base of the stumps. The discoloration would rise further up his limbs daily, and before long, I woke to see Dad's head and torso fused to the wooden chair leg supporting my weight while I write this. Well, I use the term Dad's head and torso in the loosest possible sense. By the time his limbs were completely replaced, the rest of Dad had undergrown a slow, harrowing transformation of its own. His shoulders and the arms attached to them descended lower and lower. They found their final resting place at Dad's pelvis and sat squarely behind his rigid legs. The rest of the chest area they'd left behind had its own problems. Day by day, Dad's neck retracted further inwards. It didn't stop when his jaw met his collarbone, either. It pulled Dad's head deep into his ribcage. His face flattened as the skull supporting it sank, forcing his eyes to point in opposite directions. Eventually, they slid down to where his nipples once lay, resting glassy and vacant on his pecs. The change wasn't quick enough to break his jaw, though. Instead of bent outwards, its hinges spreading wide across Dad's broad chest. Each morning, I'd find Mob sobbing over a fresh, unnecessary piece of himself he had discarded. Hair, ears, nose, his, um, thingy. All of them flaked off and crumbled to dust in their hands. He lost the ability to speak as his head withdrew. Unsurprising, though, right? He made his intentions clear before he went. The last word said to me, Don't cry. I am a chair. Always was a chair. Happy as a chair. That was the worst part, I think. Knowing that whatever the fuck was happening to Dad, he wasn't resisting it. When he had gotten that initial urge to sit in a corner and not get up, he didn't fight it. He was happy this way. 
the implication being that when he was a human, when he was a father and a husband and accountant, he wasn't. Sadly, I still don't know why or how my dad became a chair. I didn't post any photos, you see. Mom wouldn't let me. Didn't want the embarrassment. She wanted to keep dad's dignity intact. The thing is, I agreed with her and kind of still do. I'm glad I didn't get to the social media and post my pictures of my dad at various stages of his journey. The temptation was there to see if anyone could help. Nobody could have, though, could they? Dad would have become just another internet circus freak. I've done enough research and digging over the months to know that whatever happened to Dad, he's the only one. Well, almost only. Mom's own changes started around the time Dad's skin was re-threaded into orange fabric and his eyes had hardened into plastic buttons. Her change was a little different. It started with her torso, stretching her day by day while she remained in crab pose. I must say, she makes a great couch. Her transformation may have been a little more distressing, but the end result is better. Sorry, Dad, it is what it is. I think the worst part with Mom was the despondency. Dad was so serene as he changed, but Mom? She wouldn't stop weeping. Quiet sobs and tears that fell for a few days even after her own eyes had become flat plastic. She wasn't crying because of the change, though. I think it was because she wouldn't get to see how beautiful I'll look when I go through my own metamorphosis. Thing is, I get it now. Dad was right. He was a chair. Mom was a couch. I am a coffee table. I always was. I was scared at first when I realized the truth hit me like a piano dropped from the Empire State Building. I was scrubbing the last of Mom's remaining human skin when it struck through every bone in my wrong body, just as it must have done with both Dad and Mom. I spent that whole night sitting on Dad, tears falling down my cheeks staring at my spot. I didn't want it to be true. I screamed for it not to be, more than once but I couldn't deny the facts I knew deep down to my bones. That spot, that space on the rug in front of chair dad and couch mom is for me. It's mine. It's where I belong. Unlike blissfully accepting dad and weeping resigning mom, I fought it for a few days. I'm not like them. I'm only 17. I have dreams, ambitions, goals. I want to go to college, settle down, marry some lucky guy, be a mom. I wasn't ready to give up my human form. I spent my nights begging for more time. Nothing answered. The urges didn't abate. My awareness of reality had been swept away greatly. When I slept this week or so, my dreams had always been the same. I dreamt of true reality, of how I now know things should be. I dreamt of me in my place, my body elongated and wooden and flat, as is right, as is correct, as is normal. I have long, blissful slumbers filled with the feeding of hot ceramic mugs on my tabletop and thick carpet beneath our four legs. I can't fight it anymore. I'm posting this here, but also printing it out to leave as a note for the removal guys. I want them to be careful with us when the bank repossesses the house and we end up in storage. Please keep us together if you can. We're a set. Dad's sick leave ended months ago. As you can imagine, the foreclosure notices have been piling up. I stopped caring about the pile of mail under the door around the time Mom's dripcase split and flattened her wide into a pinstripe velvet upholstered back. I haven't been hungry in days or thirsty, I'm not even sure if I'm breathing now that I think about it. I'm still scared, but I have come to accept that this is the way things have to be. I don't know why, they just do. Maybe it's a curse. Maybe this house is buried on some ancient ritual site. Maybe it's just some freak anomaly of physics. Who knows? Whatever the reason, I have to suck it up and accept the way things are. 
This body, this walking, wobbling mass of skin and bone and ghibli bit that I love so much isn't right, it isn't mine, and I'm not meant for it anymore. Once I post this and print the copy for the removal guys, I'm going to get in my spot. Then it's just a case of closing my eyes and waiting. I can already feel my limbs pulling inward, my thighs and upper arms sliding to where they'll meet at my navel in just a few days. There's a tugging on my back of my knees where they'll bend into themselves, and all twenty of my fingers and toes grow numb with each hour that passes. Do I have any regrets? Thousands. There's so much I'll never get to do, get to see, get to go, or to be. I can't hide from the truth. Not anymore. I am a coffee table. Hey, Swamp Folk. Thanks for listening to the very end of this creepy and downright strange video full of campfire horror stories. If you enjoyed these stories, be sure to slap that like button like it owes you some money. Subscribe if you're new as I upload new videos almost every single day. Don't forget to turn on those notifications so you get notified. If you have a story that you would like to share in a future episode, be sure to submit yours at swampdweller.net or the email you can find in the description down below. You can also submit them via reddit at r slash thedarkswamp. I'd love to share your story with everyone here in the swamp. If you're on the go but don't have YouTube Premium, but still want to download and listen to your favorite Swamp Dweller scary stories no matter where you are, you can download them absolutely free. Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, Google Podcast, and pretty much everywhere else you find your favorite podcast online. It's absolutely free to do so and always will be. Thank you guys so much for listening to the end of this video. If you made it all the way to the end, be sure to tell me what story was your favorite tonight, as it helps me pick better ones for the future. If you enjoyed these longer compilation-style videos, definitely let me know, and I will be doing more of those in the future. Thank you guys so much. Be sure to join me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all the good stuff there. And I'll see you soon with another creepy episode.